I love, love to share with leaders really concrete tools that say, let's up the ante. Let's really show people how to play better so that we can drive the business forward faster. And it starts with the way that we think. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. This episode was previously recorded and published on the Outperform podcast. Today's quote is from Paul Tournier, and that is, nothing makes us lonely as our secrets. Our guest today, Amy K. Hutchins, knows a thing or two about secrets, especially the innermost secrets and fears of today's leaders. She's the author of The Secrets Leaders Keep and the founder of Amy K. International, an executive development firm focused on leadership development and creative and innovative thinking. Amy's also an energizing keynote speaker and creator of Dynamic Think Tank program for CEOs and C-suite individuals. Welcome, Amy Kay. Well, thank you for having me. I'm totally honored to be here. So one of the things I'm always interested in is that the folks we have on the show typically started in some place in their career that is totally different than where they ended up. And you started your career as a teacher, I believe. Uh, so I'd love to hear about your journey going from teaching kids to uh, teaching leaders in the business world. Yeah, you know, it's so fun. It's a little bit circuitous, but there's definitely this thread that is woven through everything that I've done. So if you had said to me when I was 18 years old, you know, someday you're going to end up working with a bunch of like wild CEOs and doing leadership and innovation, I would have been like, never. I'm, I'm going into the elementary school teaching world. And that is where I started, elementary school teaching. And then it morphed to teaching teachers and then really training entire organizations to think about how we teach critical thinking and not just teaching to the test and that automaton mentality. And then it went to brain-based methodology in classrooms to, hey, you know what? This might actually work in the corporate world. So I became a corporate sales trainer. And then um, it kind of morphed into opening up my own training company. And then here we are 18 years later. And yeah, I, I'm standing on a stage and I might be speaking to thousands of people or working in an intimate think tank environment. But at the end of the day, Bob, I am absolutely still a teacher. And who is easier to teach, business leaders or elementary school students? You know, they're both a conundrum. <laughs> they really are. But I will tell you that some days I do think that my fifth graders were a little easier. So it's, you know, if you're a bad habit, you know, when you're little, it's really about so it's, it's, it's kind of funny because some things just don't change. And a lot of that is like the ego and the achievement. And what is this really supposed to be about? And so back then, what I will tell you, what was harder were the parents of the kids than the kids themselves. And now you've got those individuals that have grown up and some of that baggage is with them. And so you're just trying to undo it. But at the end of the day, when I was teaching, I wasn't trying to get you at the, you know, age 10 any further than loving to learn, staying intellectually curious, staying open-minded, challenging your beliefs and assumptions. And I am still doing that um, with 40, 50, and 60-year-olds. Yeah, our guest actually on the last podcast had a phrase. He said, uh, it's not kids these days, it's parents these days. So uh, it's very, very aligned to that. So what are some of the things that you focus on teaching leaders to do in your practice? My number one goal is to raise the level of critical thinking across the enterprise. 
Like my goal is to teach leaders how to really harness the collective intelligence in the organization in very practical, non-theory ways. So everything from how we go about introducing a framework to strategic planning or operational initiatives to just running a meeting that everybody goes to on a Friday morning that they're entirely sick of going to. Um, and so I love, love to share with leaders really concrete tools that say, let's up the ante. Let's really show people how to play better so that we can drive the business forward faster. And it starts with the way that we think. And so it's kind of that, and it sounds really simple until we realize that, okay, it's fundamental, but it's actually hard to do. And it is the idea though, that it's also measurable. So like if I said to you, everybody in your organization starting tomorrow is a better critical thinker, a better problem solver, a better decision maker, a better communicator, a better collaborator, we could actually measure that. Six months down the road, we would actually measure tangible results from that. And so that's what gets me jazzed. And, you know, what is it that you mean when you've said you help leaders align their brilliance? So too many times you'll get silos or factions or you'll get hidden agendas or you'll get people driving in one direction and others driving in the other. And so what I really like to do is to help leaders say, okay, you might have marketing operations, you might have um, a small startup and people are wearing a bunch of different hats, but at the end of the day, there's a common goal and we have to have unity of command. And unity of command is this brilliant concept. I have no ego around it. I take it from our United States Army. Unity of command means that we are loyal to one vision, we are loyal to one mission, and we are loyal to one message. So we don't sit in a meeting and nod at each other and give lip service and then go back and really debate it or undermine each other back in our departments. But when you're at the leadership level, we have each other's backs. So we have really good, healthy debate. We ask questions like, what am I missing? What are we missing? What are the unintended consequences of this decision? What would be the impact on our value-added resellers or, rare, or warehouse or supply chain? And we have this really healthy dialogue so that when we go back to our peeps, in our own department, we are still aligned about where we're going. We might have an individual role or a departmental role, but we share a common goal and we're in this together. So it's really, and there are a lot of systems built around this, but it, it's organizational alignment from the top at the vision and the values and getting everyone on the same page, really with a company first viewpoint on everything. It is. And I think that we could probably even take it um, one step further. We could expand it a little bit to the whole idea of how we breed a culture of alignment and how we breed a culture of trust. Um, one of the things that's kind of my trigger, a little bit of a bugaboo, is that so many organizations will say, well, you know, trust is consistency of behaviors. And because my background is in education and science and behavior, you know, at first that sounds really slick. Oh, yeah, it's consistency of behaviors until it's the wrong behavior. And then we're like, oh, this definition doesn't really work. And so where I pointed out, it's kind of like um, if John Doe or Sally Smith is a jerk last month and they're a jerk last week and they're a jerk this morning, I trust them, but I only trust them to be what? You know, a jerk. Yeah. And so it's not consistency of behaviors. It's about vulnerability. Now, here's another technical foul. A lot of people say, oh, well, who wants to have therapy at work? It's not that kind of vulnerability. Vulnerability means that we've created an organization where it's safe for people to ask for help, where it's safe to reach across the aisle. And that's how you start to get alignment is that if I come to you and I said in the real world, Bob, you know, help me with this. This is not my area of expertise. You don't roll your eyes. 
you're not protective of your ideas. You're like, absolutely, Amy Kay, we're in this together. And so a lot of it is teaching people to drop some of their bad habits, to drop some of their assumptions in their stories and create an environment where we can collaborate and harness ideas and um, build relationships in seemingly unrelated areas of the business um, to really forge better problem solving, better thinking. Yeah, you know, I, I wrote an article about that went out this morning about friendly fire in the military and sort of equating it to businesses. And it came from a story uh, someone told us when I did our cultural onboarding that I do every two weeks. And the person said, you know, everyone's been super helpful for me and reaching out to seeing how they can help. And you know, I just, the place that I came from, if you knew something, you know, you kept it to yourself. Like it was a competitive advantage. And I, I was thinking, well, I'm, that is not going to be a high functioning organization. Right? <laughs> if somehow the leadership has allowed a, a, a culture to foster where it's literally everyone for themselves. Yes. And what you just said is absolutely spot on. You just nailed it. It's what leadership allows. And so sometimes it's pointing out to leaders that they've done it unconsciously, like the way that they reward or the way that they recognize, they've actually been encouraging that behavior. Or I'll look at a leader and I'll say, well, there might be a competing commitment here. Like you might be doing it um, unconsciously because you're actually, you're getting a win from these bad behaviors. And so you have to figure out how to get the win with better behaviors. And that, that can be a transition. You know, that, that can be a real, oh my gosh, I never even saw it that way before, aha moment. Um, but what leadership allows really goes to a phrase that I tell leaders all the time. And sometimes they love to hear this and sometimes they don't. But Bob, I will look them in the eye and I will say, you have the team you deserve. And they'll be like, oh. <laughs> right. The team you deserve, the team you built. I mean, there's a great yeah. phrase that we use a lot, which is you have, you know, you have a culture by design or default. So yep. either, either you've designed it as intentional, I can talk to your people and I can tell you what the culture is and you may not, you may not like it, but it's there. Absolutely. And so, and then that's, and really, and that's hard. Like that takes a pretty mature leader to be able to say, okay, I own some of this. You know, I got to take a little bit of responsibility for resetting what it is that I want and playing better myself. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, I just finished Extreme Ownership. I don't know if you've read that yet, but... No, I haven't read that yet. I think it's a number one bestseller. And the premise, they correlate their experience as as Navy SEAL commanders in Iraq and then in their business consulting. And it's just, you always take responsibility. Whether if if you're the leader, you take responsibility for everything. If your boss didn't understand what you were doing, you take responsibility. Just the empowerment that comes by not looking to anyone else and just taking responsibility. Well, I think at the end of the day, that that starts a whole different tone and tenor of a conversation. So if we start with excuses, um, even at the top, which I find fascinating, well, you know, so-and-so didn't do this and, you know, and I didn't know anything about that. Okay, you might not have known anything about that. I mean, some organizations and enterprises are enormous and you really don't, but that's not how you respond. It might be how you react, right. but your response should be, all right, so now I'm responsible for solving this. And I am going to take ownership of finding the right solution and responding in a way that's appropriate and then moving forward in a direction that actually is better um, or improves the process or does right by the wrong. I mean, but I do think it is our first reaction. Do you want to do you want to blame somebody or do you want to say, you know what, I own this. I didn't know about it and I still own it. I own that I didn't know about it. So let me own the solution. Yeah, it happens a lot in communication, I think, particularly with founders or visionaries where they assume that people understand what they mean. You know, I was coached on this a long time ago. Just say, look, any communication failure, just, you know, blame yourself <laughs> first and, yeah. and, and, and you'll fix the problem. Like going back to someone and saying, look, I must not have been clear about this, but here's what I was looking for rather than you didn't understand me. Yeah. And I think sometimes, too, it helps us. So one of the things I really believe in, I'm an absolute customer evangelist for self-aware leaders. Like I just believe self-awareness is the number one differentiator between a great leader and a brilliant one. And I think sometimes, you know, we have a lot of myths around what that really looks like. And sometimes it's just owning that you were a part of the mistake. I mean, I find myself sometimes I'll like, I'll be like, oh my God, you know, like how did that happen? And I can't believe that happened. And then I realize, you know what? I'm actually angry at myself because there might've been a decision that I've made now it's contributing to this. And now, yeah, this is where I'm actually frustrated with. I'm frustrated with myself because I have to own it and I have to be self-aware that I missed it. And I have to be self-aware that this might be, you know, one of my weaknesses and it's not weak to own it. It's weak to keep ignoring the fact that you're not willing to admit you're not perfect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's liberating to take control of what you can control and not pretend that you're at the whim of all these external forces. And I Correct. think I agree self-awareness for me, if I, in picking friends, in picking people I would want to serve under or people on my team, I I always, self-awareness is the number one thing to me because without self-awareness, you just can't accomplish (laughs) feedback and all these things just don't work. They just go right out the window. I agree. Totally. Amen. Preach it. Preach it, Bob. So what, from your perspective or experience, really makes a high-performance leader or, or differentiates the most successful leaders you have worked with from folks who are really average? You know, I think that ability, um, from a self-awareness um, perspective, it leads us into emotional intelligence. You know, the idea that you understand your triggers 
that you understand your own wiring, where your own stories come from so that you can change that story so that you can choose it. Um, I think that when we know what makes us tick, when we can kind of um, move from a place of reaction to response and realize we're the witness to who we are, like we're not our thoughts, we're not our actions, we're bigger than both, we're bigger than a reaction, and we can actually respond, that's an enormous differentiator. And I think that where that takes us then is to um, a quote that I heard, and I have no idea who said it, but it's definitely not mine. I just love it. And it's that energy, not time, is the fundamental currency of high performers. And I love that. I love that we're focused on energy because energy can be interpreted and defined as so many different things from spiritual and mental and emotional and physical. But when you are fueled, when you are pumped, when you are fired up in those four areas, it shows. Yeah. And so a lot of times, and I just, I don't know, maybe it's me. I mean, I, I am efficient. I'm orderly. I'm a little type A. But what drives me crazy is when people are like, well, you just need time management skills. Like you just need to like get a hold of your time. I'm like, you know what? Everybody's got the same 24 hours. Let's stop talking about time management and let's start talking about what energizes you and what fuels you and, and then priorities. And then you'll find that those 24 hours, you can do amazing things in them. Yeah. It's in the reverse is there's stuff that really drains your energy and particularly in people that really drain your energy. I also heard a great quote lately. Someone said, show me your schedule and I'll tell you your priorities. Uh, so it, it, it aligns a little bit with that, but, um, you know, you can see where, where people are spending their time, even if it's not totally correlated with their energy. Yeah. And there's a lot of noise out there. And, and the problem is we get a lot of conflicting messages. Like, you know, we're, we're we spent a whole decade on, you know, finding balance and, you know, gratitude journals and all that. And what we realized in hindsight was that the more you pursue balance, the more cray cray you get. Balance is impossible. Yeah, it is. It's a myth. And what happens is, is you'll get a lot of stuff out there that then supports it. And so we start to believe it is truth until we realize that balance isn't the goal. Like it's not supposed to be about that. It's supposed to be about finding connection and finding purpose. And there is not balance in that. Yeah, we don't we don't let the word work life balance appear in our company. We say work life integration and we say we want you to have great home experiences and great personal experiences and great work experiences and have those all sort of exactly. fit together in a public. But you're gonna have a week that's more work and you're gonna have a week that's more family and and I think you have to deal with those oscillations. I'm not going to remember it correctly, but with a couple of our management team members, we saw Randy Zuckerberg speak and, and, you know, she has the incredible stuff and unlimited money. And she, there were five things and it was like exercise, eating well, work this, whatever. And she said, each day I can do three out of the five and to think that I can do more than three out of five. So I alternate. It was really nice to see someone who had sort of unlimited means talk about how you just can't do it all. So right. she's like, don't be guilty about the two you don't do. Just do it tomorrow or do it the next day. But you can't do everything all the time. It's good. It's a nice dose of reality. So let's talk a little bit about your book, The Secrets Leaders Keep. Tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write the book. Well, I'll be vulnerable for a second. So it's definitely not the book that I set out to write. So I ended up writing a book, full manuscript, like, like 16,000 words on the 10 steps to be a great leader. And the truth is that when I was done, I was like, you know what? This book, it stinks. And it's not different enough from any other thing that's out there. There's thousands of books that we can all read about playing better. And what I realized is that I was kind of listening to the noise. You know, everybody's like, oh, you should write a book on leadership. You teach leadership. And what I realized is that 
What I'd rather write on is how hard leadership is. That like you don't just wake up one day after taking a class on leadership and find yourself like in this guru situation. It's a constant journey. It's a constant learning curve. And it's really, really hard. And we have to fail. And we have to make mistakes. And we have to learn the hard way. And I was like, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the secrets that we're keeping. And the secrets that we keep, ironically, are really not all that secret. When you realize, when you start sharing them, that everybody's kind of going through the same thing. We just don't want to admit it. We just don't want to say, I'm really struggling with this or I have this fear. And so what I did after working with leaders for over 20 years is I said, okay, I'm going to share the secrets. And so I wrote creative short stories, seven men, seven women, and they're just amalgamations of all the secrets that we keep. So some of the stories are a little closer to some real life experiences that I witnessed in other leaders, but most of them are like entirely made up. They're just this incredible blend of we're all suffering from this. So let me make a character who suffers from two or three of these secrets. That's interesting. And so are there, what are the most common secrets that you see in talking to leaders? Okay. So in the book, there's 14, but let me, let me share a few of like the really ubiquitous ones. So the first one that we hear a lot about is imposter syndrome. Yeah. And imposter syndrome is something that Sheryl Sandberg brought a lot of attention to in her book, Lean In, which was fantastic. So she started to shine light on that. And What's sad and both fascinating to me is that imposter syndrome has been around a really long time and we've created it with, with labels and hierarchies. And so if we go back over 20 something years, when I was teaching elementary school in Washington, DC, politically incorrect, but at the time I had fifth graders that were labeled gifted and talented and learning disabled. And I was fascinated that these kids could have brains that were both incredibly gifted. And yet, you know, even though they might have been reading Vaclav Havel's The Velvet Hangover when Czechoslovakia became the Czech Republic, they couldn't add two plus two or the inverse. You know, they were sending me back to my college textbooks, but they were, you know, um, brilliant in, in algebra. And so I was fascinated that these kids could do that and that they had such a dichotomous brain. That's sort of what sent me on my sort of journey in studying the brain and going to grad school to study the brain. But what was fascinating at the time is that those kids way back in the, in the eighties, they were suffering from the imposter syndrome because they were learning disabled and they weren't quote unquote perfect. They felt like the label gifted and talented wasn't deserved. So they were always looking over the shoulder with these fears of, well, I'm not good enough and I'm not smart enough and I don't belong here and I don't deserve this. And so you just fast forward to today and we have a lot of people that are suffering from the imposter syndrome, low self-esteem, low self-concept, not feeling worthy of that. And so we talk about that in the book. Yeah, you know what's really interesting because I've written about imposter syndrome and I told a story about a a CEO at a program I was at who was the smallest person in the class and was felt like she should go home the first year of the program and ended up being the billion dollar business to come out of that class. It was a pretty amazing story. But you have the people who really have worked hard and gotten there and never feel like they're good enough. And then you have the people who were in the right time in the right place or were given a lead and then they're totally overconfident and have no qualms about over-deserving what they have. So I I, it seems actually that it's an advantage to be have a chip on your shoulder than to be overly confident and, and take things where you probably were the success of a hot market or a hot time and think that you're a lot smarter than you are. Yeah, as long as we don't let that chip cripple our potential, as right. long as we don't let that chip prevent us from 
you know, believing in ourselves enough to take that really risky step. And so that's what I kind of talk about in the book. And we got to, we have questions that we want people to do exercises in the book to realize that, you know, we joke too, Bob, same joke, the rock stars of the world, the overachievers, the go-getters, they suffer from imposter syndrome. Your mediocre, like C player that shows up, that lazy <laughs> louse, they show up and they're like, Hey, I'm amazing. Yeah. And everybody's like, not so much, dude. <laughs> but, yeah. but it, it is that sense of when you are trying really hard, when you are putting in the blood, sweat and tears, you are also likely to suffer from the imposter syndrome. And so we want you to just be aware of it that you don't have to go out and become this overly confident, arrogant jerk, but you just might need to believe more of yourself that we're all struggling. We're all trying to figure it out and nobody has all the answers. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, my, my career started in 1998, right in the middle of the internet bubble. And for the next 10 years, I had a term and some friends of me used a term, people, we called them sort of 99ers, where they had had some incredible success in, in 1998 or 99 because they started something that had no customers and no revenue and, and sold it for $10 million. And 10 years later, they hadn't done anything of, <laughs> of meaningfulness. Hadn't, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, they still had this reputation from having created something in the most ridiculous bubble ever and were not able to really achieve anything since then. They were still trading off their, off their 99 credibility. So I, I, that's the type of thing that I think we see a lot. Well, and you know what's so goofy is that there again, serendipitously, the world synchronized in such a way is that they were able to maximize an opportunity. And that's awesome but they may not have learned the skills that are required to then go out and actually pull yourself up and do something from scratch that takes more effort and more work. And so sometimes we, t we talk about this in the book too, you'll get a competency addiction. You know, you'll be like, well, I was just so amazing in the nineties. Like, you know, let me just live off of that for a while. And it's yeah. like, dude, you're addicted to something that you exceeded at a long time ago, but what are you doing now? And how are you defining yourself? Because that's awesome. Nobody's going to take away your win from 10 years ago. But how are you contributing to the world now? And it doesn't have to be the same win, but it does need to be significantly meaningful to you today. Right. And that kind of goes back to that leads us then to this other secret that I talk about and probably one of the scariest right now that's going on in our world today. And that's the comparison condition. I don't want this to sound judgmental because it's not. This is just a fact. We are number one in the world as the United States of America. We are number one in anti-anxiety prescription drugs. 
and we beat most other countries by a mile. And so I'm not judging you or anybody who's listening if you're on them. No, it's just a fact. But there are a lot of really profound reasons that are leading this this confluence of events that are contributing to all these anti-anxiety prescription drugs. And a lot of it is that our young generation, our millennials and the ones that are coming up through high school right now, they're suffering um, enormously from the comparison condition. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of social media. I want to be really clear about that. I think social media is amazing and we have more access to more information and we can respond better and faster to causes that need our attention so that we can change the world for the better. The dark side of social media though is that I go on and it just exacerbates my feelings of insecurity, my feelings of self-doubt, of low self-esteem. And so we really have to help these generations right now to get really secure and healthy on the inside so that they're less influenced by social media. Yeah, I read a great article someone wrote a few years ago. It's really stayed with me. He said, the problem with social media is everyone is projecting the best 5% of their life. Yes. <laughs> and they're not talking about all the other stuff. So you're comparing your actual life to the 5% highlights of everyone else's life. And, yep. you know, I continue to, my wife and I joke about this, but, you know, the, we see these people writing pretty much their anniversary cards on Facebook, talking about other stuff. And those actually probably tend to be the unhealthiest marriages. In fact, those people who are actually having problems are over overcompensating by projecting positivity on social media. And that's what people sort of watch and go, oh, what am I doing wrong? Well, it's the classic, you know, what I joke, and it's the same thing. You know, somebody takes a selfie. I can guarantee you most times it wasn't the first take. Yeah. You know, somebody's going to do, oh, my chin or oh, my neck or oh, my. And then and then you get that quote unquote photoshopped look, even though it's just, you know, let's do this till it's perfect. You've got somebody, you know, toasting champagne in Lake Como. And then you got somebody riding a boat off of a lake. You very rarely, very unless it's a comedian, do I see the picture of somebody like, hey, here I am scooping poop off the kitchen floor, you know? So yeah. it's, it is. It's that highlight reel to your daily grind. And then you think everybody else's life is better and it's not. What's happening too, though, is we're constantly moving outside of our lane. You know, we're looking at somebody else's lane and we, and we forget. Um, Teddy Roosevelt said it years ago. Comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. And it really is like you were fine. You were fine this morning until you started comparing yourself to somebody else. And then you felt like dog do. And so there's a great visual example of this. Do you remember when Ryan Lochte had that kind of whole Summer Olympic in Brazil craziness about the burglary? I wrote one of my Friday Ford posts on that picture of, of him and yeah. him looking in the other lane. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of, to me, the story. And I'm so glad that we're talking about this because when I go around and I talk about it, most people remember Ryan Lochte and the, the made-up story of the burglary. And I'm like, no. Remember the picture of him where he goes and he looks at all the other lanes? He is so enormously suffering from the comparison condition. And what the analogy that I love about this is that every time you come up above the water and you look in somebody else's lane, whether it's left or right or both, you're slowing yourself down. And then one guy, when I was giving a speech at a conference, we had Q&A afterwards and he says, but shouldn't you know what the competition is doing? And I said, yes, but not in the heat of your swim. Yeah. Not when you're in the middle of your lane. I said, you can get up, you can dry off, you can go back to the hotel, you can watch footage to see what the world is doing, but you don't see what the world is doing to compete with them. You compete with yourself. And the only person that you should be focused on when you're swimming the meet 
is you and where you are in your lane. And he was like, oh, I don't know. And I was like, well, it's just a story. It's just a story in your head. But I will tell you, you don't want to give your power away. And and Ryan does it all the time. It's why he's never number one. Yeah, I I, I could not agree with you more on that. And I think that I, I see more companies fall from within, you know, the, the just failures from within in leadership than really being beaten by their competitors. I think it's actually a much, <laughs> it's much more pervasive to sort of have the company fall on itself than to just beat by competitors. But I, I think the competition is about elevating your own game. Look, we all, we need to compete, right? No one wants to work for the 5,000th best place to work and no one wants the employee that no one else wants. But I think it's really about elevating your own game and that actually is the root the Latin root of the word compete. It's not about when we lose. It's about how do you grow your own capacity and elevate your own game? Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. And, and that's the amazing thing too, is that when we, when we stop looking out and we start looking in and we become better, the ripple effect is enormous because we're modeling that for others. We're interacting. We change the tone and tenor of our conversations. We change the way that we respond. And that's really all we can do. I mean, really and truly, I can't. So, so here's like one of my, just my little quirks. I go around making a living, quote unquote, by being a motivational speaker. So here's the irony. I think it's bullshit. I am not a motivational speaker. And when people call me, I'm like, yeah, that's great because you understand the box that I play in. And if that's easier for you, that's great. But you cannot motivate anybody. Full stop. They have got to figure it out for themselves. Now, I can trigger, I can be a spark, I can share really cool insights and information, but at the end of the day, the only person that can motivate Bob is Bob. Yep. I'm I'm a big fan of Dan Pink's work around, and we built a lot of our culture on developing intrinsic motivation and not extrinsic, because if you're just using the carrot and stick all the time, it's not going to work. It's only going to work in a very limited set of circumstances where, where it's stuff that people don't want to do and they just have to get it done. Absolutely. And, and, and usually what happens too, is that the carrots and the sticks, it just gets old and and people get tired of it. And so instead of changing their behaviors, they actually just leave. Right. Yeah. It does. It's the creativity or anything else. It it only works in really repetitive stuff that people don't want to do to kind of make it, make it more interesting. Well, we usually end with a question, and so I'm going to give you a choice okay. uh, of the last two questions. So what's a mistake that you've made in your career that you've learned the most from, or what's a secret that you kept in your career that held you back? Oh my God, do we have hours for both? Um, I'll go with the first one. Let's be honest. We all make mistakes. We all misstep. And one of the biggest ones that I made for probably the first half of my entire career is that I settled. I believed the story that I should be grateful. I believed the story that I should be so appreciative of anything that came my way that, you know, the, the universe could serve me up crap. And I'd be like, oh, thank you so much for this beautiful poo. You're like, thank you so much. And, and what I realized is that I was watching all these other people around me say, no, no, thank you. Like, I want better. I'm not settling for mediocrity and you, and you can't treat me that way. And this is not acceptable. And I was like, do you can do that? I was like, that's an option. And so I think that one of the things that's really cool is for whether you're in corporate America or you're an emerging entrepreneur or you're a seasoned entrepreneur, I would look around in your life and I would say, where am I settling and what is the cost of that? And how do I not settle going forward? 
That's powerful. Yeah, you, you, you're the opposite, I think. Sounds like a most, like, too grateful versus not, <laughs> not grateful enough. You walked all over me? Thank you for treading gently. Yeah. You know, it's like, I just, I, I, I took it to the extreme of the wrong. So, yeah, that's definitely a mistake that I made for way too long. Well, thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that. Well, Amy Kay, it was wonderful to have you on Outperform to chat with us today. It really sounds like you're doing some amazing work with leaders and entrepreneurs to help them both be and do better in life and business. I love what I do. I feel blessed every day. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm passionate about it. That makes it easy. Uh, And that's probably what you coach people on. So to our listeners, um, we'll include links to Amy Kay's website, book page, and coaching resources, and also the imposter syndrome articles that we talked about during the episode. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep outperforming. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.